Here we go. It is the System Failure Podcast number 24. Number 24. Yeah, hey Brian, how are you this fine Sunday afternoon, morning? I guess it's still kind of morning for another hour or so. I'm super. How are you? <laughs> Pretty good myself. We're uh, hopped up on some cheap coffee from Joe's Variety downstairs. Uh, and um, so uh, this should be an especially entertaining edition of the old System Failure Podcast. Oh, yeah. Um, all right. Well... I don't know. You have like a Substack essay dropping, eh? Yeah, uh, finally. It took me forever to polish this one. Uh, sometimes the bread just has to stay in the oven for an extra long time. Um, so I'll be pushing a new essay uh, out this week. Um, and it's all about the, the, this idea that, um, with, that when major economic systems come to an end, like it, it's a, 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 a cornerstone in the... It's a plank in the system failure notion of ideas that the system is failing and the, the system is coming to an end and the way that that warps uh, perceptions of reality like we should expect things to get crazier and crazier um as we go through this process um so anyway that's what's cooking on the back burner uh, for this week um and uh, the other thing that i definitely wanted to mention on this pod was the rfk um ad on the super bowl you remember seeing that i sure do yeah last week it was super bowl sunday we were we recorded our pod number 23 which has yet to drop but we'll be dropping you know before this episode does and uh so we were hanging out we put we put our pod in the can and then we were hanging out watching the super bowl and during the super bowl we saw this ad from the rfk camp which had the the 1960s kennedy jingle from the um the uh jack kennedy's 1960 campaign i guess it would be the, the 1959 jingle from the 1960 presidential election or whatever it was and um so I had this old timey jingle and a you know and a bunch of RFKs. Uh, they just basically made this. Um, it's it really is a good. I thought it was a good in the sense that it kind of evoked that MAGA nostalgia without being without being the MAGA or associated with the Donald. But it was really it, it felt like an old timey nostalgic back from the you know the 1950s Leave It to Beaver era, and made a solid link between the presidential candidates um, RFK and JFK from the 60s and made the you know and connected rfk jr to that era and maybe that'll be an interesting i i guess it i guess the ad buy was like seven millis and um, i guess they ginned it up at the last minute when the days leading up to the super bowl made a last minute ad buy um but i don't know i thought it was a pretty interesting idea i'll be looking forward to seeing the next round of polls that come out from quinnipiac or what wherever uh, they're all, the, the pollsters are all working in overdrive this time of the election cycle uh, so we can expect some um hopefully yeah, I'll be interested to see if the new poll numbers show any more boosts to RFK's already wildly encouraging third-party independent candidate candidacy numbers. Um, so I wonder what you thought of the TV commercial, Brian. I obviously didn't expect it to come on. It just kind of started playing. Uh, we had no idea it was coming, but... Um yeah, well, the biggest thing is that there weren't any commercials for any other uh, presidential political candidates, yeah, and yeah. Uh, I think you'd have to consider that to be uh, encouraging. I mean, it would be a crazy black swan event if we actually managed to elect an independent candidate. That would really uh, throw like a wrench in the system, um, and uh, you'd have to say that's like an encouraging uh, thing to happen. Uh, like it'd, I, it'd be a wild turn of events. I agree. <laughs> okay, when I talked to some people about RFK in um, 
they just feel like he has no chance because he's a third party candidate. But uh, if it was ever going to happen, like I mean, this would be the election, and uh, and he's the only uh, candidate with a Super Bowl commercial. So, <laughs> um, I think it's um, correct to say that um, the most recent polling, which is now a month or so old, about with RFK shows that he is um, in the lead over. I think the age group is if is if you're 42 or younger, then RFK is the leading candidate. Uh, that's that's just a three way race: the Donald, Biden, and RFK Jr. And he is leading. If the if the election was only people under 42, why well, then um, this then it would be uh, then you then you could just say that RFK is leading the two the two conventional political parties in the poll. Um, and then there's also favorability ratings. Um, I forget who publishes those, um, but RFK, of course, leads by double digits, both Biden and Trump in favorability ratings um, across all demographics. Um, that's not who you're going to vote for. That's just who do you think is the best guy or the, who do you view most favorably. Um, so, man, I think that um, I, I think that among everyone, uh, I think that RFK, I'm trying to remember, I think it was like 26% or something. Um, in the. In, this is now this is a month before the Super Bowl commercial came out um, and so I think the leading the, the, the polling has that has um, RFK l- losing by 10 points or so the the Donald and uh, and Biden um, I think I think all that's pretty accurate um, but uh, again I'm, I'll be curious because like it's like RFK has gone he's done the podcast circuit and he's just been on everyone's podcast and he, and he from 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 my core sample of the podcast universe, the podcast diverse, whatever it's called, my, my, it does seem like um, everyone is all in an RFK Jr. From Adam Kroll and Dr. Drew or on the one side over to on Joe Rogan on the other side. Um, and so um, I think that that's why RFK leads in, is leading so prominently um, now uh, 10 months before the election or nine months before the election. Um, among people under 42, but it's the older folks who watch, who maybe still watch their <laughs> regular news outlets who need to hear about RFK Jr. So that's why I really was pleased to see his Super Bowl commercial, um, you know, splashed up there before the world. Well, if RFK, RFK loses, you know, we can certainly blame the boomers and uh, continue to be upset at them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think I think we've reached a tipping point, though. I think enough. Of the, I, I think I would. Lo- I, my prediction is that we have got enough. Enough of the boomers are realizing that uh, realizing that. Well, we were saying before the pod started. If you're like if you like make if you're making you know forty five k, you're not gonna you're not gonna make it in today's America. You would you really need to have two hundred k salaries, a two hundred hundred k income, so like afford a housing and a family and the other trappings of American life that people consider um, that people consider to be the quintessential American life when they you know the the. The quintessence of which comes from that 1950s Leave It to Beaver era that RFK's commercial kind of you know channeled uh, in the Super Bowl. So yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think we've got. I, I think. I think I, my prediction is that it could happen, or that it will happen. Um, that that in 2016, um, enough people were upset to cause the election to go not the way the establishment planned. In 2020, it was like a, a stalemate. Um, but I, now I think that. Uh, we're really in for it. We're, I, I think we're in for a wild year. Uh, speaking of like the 2016 and 2020 elections, <laughs> did you listen to Michael Benz on the Tucker Carlson podcast? Yeah, I had no idea who this guy was before it popped up. Um, but um, but I think um, the my main takeaway from the Michael Benz pod um, could maybe summarize within a single sentence or two, and you'll have to tell me what, what your takeaway was, is that, um, th- that to the apparatchiks that control our system to them democracy is like um it's like a 
consensus among the major groups, you know, like the 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 um, like the Council on Foreign Relations and CIA and like uh, the, like the Justice Department and you yeah. Know. Well, he said that democracy is about getting like walls, the Wall Street Journal and BlackRock to agree with each other <laughs> yeah, on what our yeah, policies are going to yeah. be. Yeah, uh, and that and that the the the. It's just, um, it's just a consent thing that the the, the voting the, the voting is just all about um, manufacturing consent for whatever it is that whatever that whatever that consensus turns out to be then you know you have to figure out how to pull how to you have to come up with a plan to pull it off and then part of the plan is to get consent through the voting which is what voting does and they just view it as consent manufacturing. Well, uh, one thing is that it's a little unclear who Michael Benz is. So I guess he had some position in like Trump's cabinet or uh, he was some kind of in the. Trump State Department. He had some position, um, and I was like googling him, and the, the mainstream media says that you know he espouses alt right opinions. Mm. But anyway, the things that he like his uh, narrative about what's happened in history makes like a great deal of sense. So I mean, well, su- summarize it for us. Um, uh, if you his narrative of history, how would you summarize it? Well, he talks about like in 1948. Uh, America, you know, interfered with uh, the Italian election to prevent the commies from winning. You know, we stuffed ballot boxes. This would be Operation Gladio, eh? Uh, yeah. And uh, there was just this idea that the CIA or the United States, you know, had to meddle in foreign elections for, like, the good of the people and to defeat communism. Yeah, there's a... Um, so OSS is the name of the division um, prior to... Uh, you know, the, the name of our spy division prior to... Uh, during World War II. And then 1948, the War Department gets... Re, the whole thing gets reshuffled. The War Department becomes the Defense Department, and OSS becomes CIA. Yeah, and so... Uh, well, just thanks to technology, uh, like instead of having to like uh, do these things through embassies or boots on the grounds efforts and whatnot, you, they could just via free speech on the internet. Uh, like from 1991 to 2014, uh, the like CIA could very effectively overthrow governments uh, just by using social media, and so. There's all these, like, DARPA projects, um, uh, like, VPNs and, like, the Tor network and whatnot, and, like, Google. uh, All these things uh, were used, like, just by using free speech, they could overthrow government. So the pinnacle of that is, like, the Arab Spring, where uh, they had, you know, Facebook and Twitter uh, revolutions in, like, I don't know, like, Tunisia and whatnot. Egypt, famously. Yeah. Um... And so, uh, yeah, free speech was, like, uh, championed by the CIA. But then um, in, like, 2014 to 2016, like, Brexit happened, and then the Donald got elected. And uh, the people in charge, like, weren't prepared for how free speech was going to, you know, have, like, its own effect on politics here in America, right? Um, And so, like, all these people started pointing the efforts that were used in overthrowing governments in these other countries were now like targeted like in the united states right yeah and so it culminates in like the 2020 election and covid being uh like the two most like censored (laughs) uh like events in like human history is what uh michael benz was saying yeah yeah. Um, so yeah you can so when when things start to go wrong in guatemala right and um the banana pickers down there start getting funny ideas about how 
maybe the bananas are the banana since the bananas are grown in Guatemalan soil and the people who pick them are Guatemalan then maybe the profits of selling those bananas ought to go to Guatemalans and when so when some left-wing labor organizer starts rankling chains and making some funny noises about you know more equitable pay for the banana pickers it used to be that you'd have to get James Bond to go down there, you know, and sneak up behind the labor leader uh, with his Walt, silence Walter PPK and put a <laughs> put a put a nine millimeter around the back of the guy's head, you know. But instead of doing that, what you can do is just um, get if you control Facebook, you can just control what all those people in Guatemala are seeing on their Facebook feeds, and that's just a much easier way than hiring James Bond to go out and assassinate people. Uh, and uh, what? What's yeah. That? So the truth is that like social media is what actually controls elections. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, that's why censorship is so important. And uh, like like Brexit's actually a huge deal because like NATO was almost like overthrown uh, by free speech, right? Uh, which would be like a shocking uh, loss for uh, like the Western uh, I don't know system. Yeah. So this machine work was working great, like you like you mentioned Arab Spring. You know, uh, it was trying to use this on the for- like um, what was the it was it Myanmar where they famously had the elections that got swung by Facebook. If you watch that crazy documentary, oh, I forgot. Um, I think it was Myanmar, but. Um, yeah, this this tool is working out great until uh, until mm-hmm. discontent at home, you know, post two thousand eight discontent at home culminated in the election of the Donald and Brexit both in twenty sixteen, which was a shocking uh, turn of events. And so, there had to be a January seventh like event that had to happen in order to justify the use of our uh, foreign terror policy on domestic targets, uh, people who spread, inf- <laughs> who who are people who spread information that's inconvenient to the agenda the uh, the consensus we mentioned between the major bulwarks of american society um so yeah pretty wild um i thought it was uh, quite an interesting pod yeah i mean I, I think the only politically contentious ideas is really that just that you know covid and the 2020 election were the most censored events um i mean the idea is that they knew that Biden was going to get the overwhelming amount of mail-in votes, and so they had to censor this idea or, you know, prepare. It just would be a huge uproar if the Donald, you know, won, and then seven days later, via mail-in vote count, you know, uh, the Biden was declared to be a victor. It kind of happened that way, right? Is, we all went to bed <laughs> on election day, right, and the Donald was ahead. And then, like, slowly, and then by the time we all woke up the next morning, they were saying, oh, well, you know, there's some more mail-in ballots are trickling in, in Georgia and Nevada. Well, yeah, and uh, if you express the idea that, you know, something was wrong with these mail-in ballots, uh, it uh, was, uh, I mean, that, like, was a censored idea. Like, that's, like, not, like, an acceptable, that's, like, some kind of far-right opinion. And so I guess you have to say the censorship was effective in, like, quarantining that idea as to being, like, a fringe, you know, MAGA conspiracy idea. See, I thought, as lefties, you know, well, I'll speak for myself as a lefty, that, like, the idea that elections were, you know, that there was fuckery afoot in the elections was just a boilerplate idea that we all accepted, right? Doesn't everyone think, like, in 2000, in Volusia County, with, um... Uh, where Daytona Beach is, when they had all of those, they had all of those folks crossed off the voter rolls for you know n- suspicious reasons, and when they went through to do the recount, uh, the Jeb Bush, the pre- the brother of the Camp George Bush, who would go on to win the election, right? Jeb Bush had his Secretary of State Kathleen Harris certify the election before the state Supreme Court could have a chance to really dig into it, right? Isn't that how it went? Down? It was some, there was like all kinds of like uh, eye rolling, you know, afoot. 
Like, and it, doesn't everyone know that in the 2016, like the 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 primaries were rigged in favor in 2020, the primaries were like flagrantly but rigged against Bernie. Like, didn't the DNC have to admit that in court, but but then uh, assert that they're a private entity and not beholden to? Yes, we did. You know, we did. We did cheat to to make sure Bernie didn't get the nomination, but we're a private organization. We're allowed to cheat. It's not like we're messing with a federal election. The DNC is a private corporation. You know? So I think so like the DNC has had to admit that in court, right? Didn't Donna Brazil have to step down as the head of the DNC because they were like cheating and CNN was giving Hillary the debate questions first? And I mean, I just thought, like, doesn't everyone know that Jack Kennedy in Chicago at the DNC in 1960 didn't, doesn't everyone know that like they had to cheat to get Jack Kennedy past the finish line? I just thought it was. Everyone knows the elections are. You know, there's some. You know, there's, there's always some fuckery afoot. Well, practically speaking, uh, I, it's just a question of what you're afraid of, and then I think you base your opinions off of that. But like, so if you're more afraid of the COVID than government tyranny, then uh, you know you're all in on mask mandates and you know uh, uh, vaccine mandates as well. Right, right. If you're more afraid of ter- terrorism than of government tyranny, then you're going to be all for the you know the, the terror levels. You know, yeah. red and orange and yellow and green. And uh, the same. If you're more afraid of the Donald than uh, government tyranny, then uh, uh, you will not be. I mean, you just aren't going to say that elect the election is questionable. Right? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. And uh, they successfully tied the Donald with Russia, and so. Uh, you know, it is what it is. Uh, yeah, it is all very confusing. I mean, it's weird because we, like, want socialism. Well, it seems like there's supposed to be this movement for equity. And, uh, like, there's, like, the anti-work movement on Reddit. And uh, there's all this, uh, I mean, people, like, cultural Marxism is, like, in our universities. But we're, like, afraid of Putin, like he's the yeah. bad guy, which it's weird. It doesn't make any sense, right? Yeah. Well, um, so to place this whole business with uh, the uh, with Ben's on the um, on the Tucker, Tucker's pod, like the, the, to put you got to put that in a in the broader perspective. Like America was part of a great revolution to get rid of to I would say increase democracy, uh, but that's what the American Revolution was all about. You know, um, uh, no, what is it? No taxation without representation. Right. The idea is to make things gradually more democratic over time. And like, um, and America and France was part of the, was, you know, started out as part of this um, revolution against monarchy. And uh, like, as the 19th century wore on, like we resisted having the central, the central bank here. Uh, we had the first bank in the United States, and that got fought off. And then the second bank in the United States, and that got the first bank was like Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton and their feud. And then the second bank was fought off by Andrew Jackson. And then uh, we had the Civil War, where Abe Lincoln put up his middle finger to the Rothschild banks, and instead of borrowing money from them, simply printed the greenbacks he needed to prosecute the Civil War. And then we had uh, Teddy Roosevelt and his trust busting regime. I mean, the guy was like um, quite the colonial. With this foreign policy, but uh, when it came from to when it came to monopolies here, domestic monopolies, he was uh, aggressive about busting them all up. Um, there, in short, there was this whole there was this revolt against the medieval social order of kings and lords, and you know you just are born into your social position, um, and uh, and then all that, and then in in Europe that culminated in the revolutions of 1848 and uh, the Paris Commune of the 1870s and finally the the, the Russian Revolution of 1917 
And the final part of that, the, the, the last we heard of the revolution here was the New Deal, which FDR explicitly put into place to prevent, prevent a communist revolution, a communist takeover here, like the one that occurred in Russia in 1917. And, um, and the, I mean, if you just, the New, the new Deal was so you know the new deal involves soaking the rich uh tax the person the, the people who paid for the new deal for like the hoover dam and for the golden gate bridge and for unemployment insurance and social security all of the money to pay for that came from just soaking the rich and of course the rich had that uh infamous business plot in 1937 again where they you know tried to get marine corps general smedley butler to run their coup for them um chose the wrong guy and uh butler General Butler blew the whistle on the whole thing, but that was the last we heard. Is since then we've just been taking loss in that in that battle to liberate to, to institute democracy, uh, which which is we call instituting socialism or communism. But that 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 great fight to promote the proliferation of democracy, we just haven't we just, we the people just haven't scored a victory in America since the 1930s, and um, so you're right. And but and so instead of talking about that, the way that the intellectual chessboard is set up has us uh, afraid of Putin instead of talking about the implementation of democracy or democratic oversight over the means of production, which is the great, the great thing that we're all waiting around tapping our feet for um, to, to avoid. We have this whole business with Putin as a boogeyman to distract from that. Um, and it's, I can't believe that it's, I can't believe that that's the level of discourse that we're stuck engaging in. If you listen to Putin on like Tucker Carlson, uh, you know, he's obviously interested in some kind of peace deal. At least that's what he says. And, uh, I, I mean, there's, I don't, I don't, I don't know what people are like upset when you, people talk about like the long history of like, uh, the West advancing against Russia, and yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know. Like, I'm not sure what the counter narrative. People, you know, say Tucker's not asking like hard hitting questions and is being, you know, Putin's a uh, little bitch, I guess. But what are you supposed to say about the history of like Western aggression against uh, Russia? And uh, I mean, NATO like wasn't supposed to expand. And I, yeah. You know. Well, it all started in 1918 when uh, we had a bunch of American troops stay after World War One to go into Russia and fight on the side of the whites against the Reds. Um, that is to say, to fight against the monarchists, against the new Bolshevik, uh, the new Bolshevik and Menshevik factions struggling for power within Russia. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, we were. Just, I mean, we didn't. We, we didn't recognize the the Soviet Union till like for like decades. You know, we like refused to recognize them as a country. I mean, it, the antagonism, and then the, the Cold War resulting after World War Two. The antagonism is the, the 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 history of antagonism is long and profound. When it, and that's the relationship that we have had to the Soviet Union. And we could have had this great relationship with them, like we used to have with the French during the uh, late eighteen the late eighteenth century, the seventeen hundreds. They called it the French connection and uh but no instead we just have to make sure that economic schemes that involve too much democracy over the means of production never get a foothold or a toehold uh never get a handhold and so that's why we have to constantly be antagonistic towards russia and i think that's the thing that's defined our foreign policy with relationship with really with respect to russia since 1917 yeah speaking of this cognitive dissonance around like uh putin and socialism and yet people kowtowing to our capitalist overlords over here well i just did want to talk about you know yuri bezmanov for yeah. a bit okay give he, us the lowdown on yuri bezmanov well yeah i mean he's got all these interviews from like the 80s uh on youtube and whatnot but he's got like one famous one in particular where he talks about like ideological subversion right yeah. and um so it's like a four-step process 
you know, ideological subversion where you like start teaching the kids like Leninist Marxist ideas. And then after like 10 to 15 years, uh, this like destabilizes the system. Uh, then you got like some crisis and then some normalization. And I don't know, I was born in 88. I mean, it seems like uh, like Marxist ideas or whatever. I mean, they really didn't take place until it seems like um, like after two thousand eight, after yep. the bailouts. Exactly what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, we had the yeah, the ninety nine percent, and then that suddenly became uh, I, I don't know what to call it uh, racial hysteria or something. I, I don't know. I don't know what, what what we call it. Cultural Marxism, I guess, is. Uh, the common parlance, though. Yeah. Um, so, in 2008, we had that crazy financial crisis, of course, and in response to that, we had the election of uh, the nation's first black president in the personage of Barack Obama, and we also had, at the same time, which I assume to be a coincidence, but maybe, maybe it isn't, is this whole business about um, equal marriage rights for, for gays, um, which I remember in 2010, we legalized um, in Maine, same-sex marriage and i just remember rolling by city hall here in portland at midnight the first the first day it was legalized so there was like a gay couple getting married the first like second they possibly could so there's a, it's, it's midnight but there's a big marriage thing going on on the steps of city hall i remember driving by and blasting my horn in enthusiasm but it seems like what we what was really called for was like a bernie sanders style new deal sort of fdr kind of um uh cat response to the excesses of capitalism but the paymasters of the Democratic Party don't want that. So what they did was double down the theme of um, the the racial theme from Barack Obama's election in 2008, and the and the gay marriage thing as a it, it could get people to the ballot box without making any economic promises that would have to be broken. And so I think that we doubled down on those things post 2008, uh, maybe even around 2010, as you're saying. Um, and so that's my impression too. Like, so it's, it feels like this, the, the whole idea of cultural Marxism and crazy notions, crazy twisted Marxist notions, like out, like, um, equity of outcome versus equity of opportunity. All those seem like to enter the zeitgeist only after the crazy banking crisis of 2008 and the subsequent bailouts. Um, so, um, so I agree with what you're saying so far. Well, I mean, I, it seems like to solve like the racial tensions in the United States, what we just need is like uh, programs that help all poor people, right? And that's yeah. what like MLK wanted, right? And uh, for some reason, those ideas are at odds for like what Ibram X. Kendi wants. Oh, well, I'm like unclear exactly what Ibram X. Kendi wants, but uh, well, Coleman Hughes was on Sam Harris's podcast, and like Coleman Hughes famously gave a TED talk about uh, how we should aspire to be a colorblind society, and uh, basically echoing you know MLK's ideas. And for that, you know, uh, he was like banned from TED talks. Those ideas were way too uh, racist, apparently. So the four steps: ideological subversion. Yeah, it seems like it did start in like the two thousands. Like I don't. I don't know if somehow allowing gay marriage like put the things in place to that would like bamboozle our society where we'd become obsessed with the opposite of color blindness and like uh uh some craziness in the field of like transgender matters or whatever. 
I would say that we um, we like in the night and during the civil rights movement of the 1960s, we really like um, we did, we had a sort of self correction as a society. It's like, well, I guess it's probably not moral to have, like uh, to like have separate water fountains for different colored people. That's just crazy. And um, we had a similar sort of reckoning in like 2010. I think that the, the with respect to like gay marriage, and I think that um, the idea was to take that gay marriage template and just repeat it over because the gay marriage template very convenient because it has no economic. Um, it's not going to be like, okay, what we have to do is um, strike down the banks or regulate the banks or put laws in place that when we bail out the banks that they become you know public property instead of letting people continue to own the banks even though they require you know, hundreds of billions of dollars to bail them out. Those, the, those kinds of ideas um, is the opposite of what the wealthy donors to the Democratic Party want. But but arguing about gay marriage, they love it. And the, the, we just, so we just continue doing that. Okay, so what's the next step after gay marriage well it's kind of like it's, now it's transgendered people well they're an agree like, we just went to a smaller aggrieved party and uh, they just want to keep playing that trick over and over again but that's just a cul-de-sac we're going to go round and round and identifying smaller and smaller ever smaller aggrieved parties now we got like we you mean we need like respect for animal kin or whatever you know it's like the though the, they keep tacking letters on to lgbq to just try to keep just try to milk just squeak just wring that bar rag out for every drop they possibly can yeah well i think that adding letters to the lgbtq business is only a problem insofar as it's a distraction mm. from uh like 99 percent politics basically right yeah we need to like start big and work small to, 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 if we're going to have a polity where we identify problems and address them then you really have to start with the biggest problems that you have and work your way down but the biggest problems are inconvenient to those who currently control our apparatus of state the masters of empire Um, because the changes that are desperately needed involve um, curtailing their wealth and reintroducing some of that wealth that's sequestered outside of the cyclical economy back into the aforementioned cyclical economy and um, they, in order to avoid having that happen, we get a lot of ballyhooing about ever smaller aggrieved minorities who need to be respected and have equal rights and get the treatment that we, that we gave to you know, same-sex couples in the early 2010s. Um, but, that, but again, that's, that's a yeah, total distraction. You know, what really needs to happen is some kind of moderating of the vast wealth chasm that's threatening to tear our society apart. Yeah, well, so like uh, Joe Rogan was talking about Yuri Bezmenov uh, with Aaron Rodgers, and uh, Yuri Bezmenov comes up a lot on... Uh, <laughs> Uh, He's a boilerplate on the old JRE. Uh, absolutely, that's why yeah, well, I listened to him years ago. Yeah, well, Tim Pool was uh, talking about uh, used to talking about him all the time. I don't oh, really? listen to that's Tim Pool as much uh, <laughs> anymore, so I don't know if that's still a common topic. But um, well, uh, like on the Aaron Rodgers podcast, they were just kind of suggesting that the problem with America is this infection of Marxist-Leninist uh, ideas that. I, I mean, I guess is like it's like the master plan of like uh, Russia's KGB or something. Well, I mean, it seems like uh, like the World Economic Forum and the people like who run the world have successfully infiltrated um, American society with, or the really the world society with like cultural Marxist ideas. It goes back to the censorship we were talking about there with Michael Benz, I guess. Um, I don't know. Just it, it seems like what what's actually happened is just there's a distraction from yeah the 99 percent politics with these cultural Marxist ideas, we put up with quotation marks, because really it's nothing to do with the economics of the matter. 
and uh right so i mean yeah, i guess yeah. you'd have to say uh, it's it's been completely ineffective or i don't know like the, it's just it obviously like, i don't know what what's up with yuri bezmanov <laughs> like I, I i don't know if he's trying to if it's some kind of inception idea to like if it's like a distraction or something these intelligence people are all crazy I, you know. they as a tactic they used to um and you're going to know about this during like the middle ages right or even during the uh, ancient times they would um, in order to part if you want to lay siege to a city one tactic is to take plague victims people who've died of the plague chop off their heads and launch the the infected heads over the walls with a catapult all right um, i bring this up because the west has long considered the marxist ideas about democratic oversight over the means of production they've long considered that to be a contagion or like an idea that spreads dangerously from person to person and they that's been believed in by the west of the powers that be in the west for so long that they intentionally sent vladimir lenin into russia uh, to try to knock the russians out of world war one right um giving uh, lenin of course lived in exile uh, like everyone lived in austria like in the same like um trotsky and lenin and like Freud, the list of people who lived in Austria at the same time is like bizarre. All the kinds of artists and political Hitler who was one of these guys who lived in Austria during this time period. But anyway, um, the Allied powers during World War One, their their version of shooting the plague infected skull over the wall um, was giving Lenin a train ticket back to Moscow. All right, so they sent Lenin Trotsky back to Moscow. It was like this way of throwing a bomb into the Russian society. And it worked brilliantly. They were able to accept that the 1917 revolution knocked Russia out of World War One. Well, who is the they that did this? Like at the capitalist West? Uh, yeah, so this would be um, the um, like the, uh, the leaders of the United States and Britain and, uh, and their allies, France. But, like, weren't they already, like, Marxists since, like, the revolution, like, the, you know, 1916s or whatever? So, World War One started in 1914. And so, from 1914 to, like, 1915 to, like, 1916, like, some, some point in 1916, the Allies were like, wait a second, this, the Russians have exiled people, the Russian king, the Tsar, who still has power at this point, but the war's going really badly for the Russians. Like, just, it's like the Ukraine, the first, the, in the beginning of the war, just crazy amounts of russian young people are being slaughtered young men are getting slaughtered and um there's matt there's discontent in saint petersburg because um because uh the czar is away at the at the front fighting in the trenches of world war one and so there's the, the 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 monarch's not in the capital and uh the queen has fallen under the sway of the crazy siberian monk um rasputin and uh the whole situation is just there had already been a few attempted coups to bring down the czarist regime prior um and uh, so the Allied, the, the commanders of the Allied war effort thought, wait a second, we can just send, we can just send Lenin back, to, back into the back. We can just send him to Saint Petersburg, send him to Moscow, and uh, and that will bring about that will bring down the time is right, you know, that will bring down the Russian, the the, the Russian monarchy. Well, what year was that? Nineteen sixteen. Okay, okay, so that's all right. The, the nineteen seventeen. I, I thought you were saying the sixties. I think, but oh, the nineteen sixteen. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is and yeah. then Stalin like gets control somehow. Lenin gets control. Yeah, emerges uh, the the nineteen eighteen to nineteen twenty two was the Russian Civil War, or nineteen seventeen to nineteen twenty two was the Russian Civil War, and eventually during that period they they decide they have to assassinate the Tsar and his family because like that's the idea was is not that we you know it's not that we necessarily want to kill and shoot his, the Tsarevich and the four his four daughters the four Tsarinas. Uh, the, what do you, whatever you call the Russian, the, prince, the four princesses, Anastasia being the youngest. It's not that we like are delighted to shoot these people down, but 
we need to make sure that there's no possibility of going back. So we have to, you know, st- stamp out the Romanov family forever, which they did. Um, and um, so uh, the so we we the point is here that we thought we we, we thought of Marxist ideas as such a disease, such a such a thing that has the dangerous capability to jump from person to person and spread like an infection. So we just sent Vladimir Lenin back to Russia, where he soaked the 1917 revolution. And of course, part of the Part of the um, part of the deal was that they, you know, they got rid of the old czarist government, and um, and then they revealed these papers where the czarist government and the other Allied powers from World War One, right? Because uh, uh, the um, sorry, it was the Germans who sent. Uh, uh, I got mixed up here. The Germans trying to knock Russia out of the war, the ones who because because um, Lenin is living in Vienna, right? So the Germans sent him into Russia. It's not the Allied powers. Um, but anyway, it worked brilliantly, and uh, the the um, the acts the central powers there, um, Austria and Germany, they got, and they also allied with the Turks. They got Russia out of the war by sending Lenin back in there. So it's it's always been the capitalist mindset that like we have to make sure that we treat this ideas as like an infection. And I think that the thing that actually does jump from mind to mind like an infection is the idea of democratic oversight of the means of production. Like that has that that would have such obvious benefits for society. Like for example, you would see the end of offshoring. Like if a factory was owned by its workers they would never vote there to move their own jobs to to Quanju. you know they, that would never that would never in a million years happen that only happens when one party is making all the decisions and that party is only interested in profit so anyway uh that i think is the uh, so i so there's no i mean i definitely believe that the soviets were like like we had um mccarthyism here you know where you have to round up everyone who might have anything to, who might have considered this idea of democratic oversight over the means of production we got to round them up make sure they can't get a job and that they're blacklisted or even worse, arrested, you know, and interrogated by um, by J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. So it, there's no. I, I gotta think that the Russians, from their side of the chessboard, are like, well, we people like this this idea of democratic oversight over the means of production, right? This is going to have that that idea can. I would think from their side, they would think, well, this is a self evidently great idea that would alleviate so many of the problems that are plaguing Western democracy even now. Uh, and so I got to think that they must have had some plan, like Bezmanov describes, of like getting these ideas around the McCarthyist firewall to get people to actually convince them. And it, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, I remember canvassing for the DSA in 2012 or something, or knocking on doors, and you'd, be, you'd knock on the doors of old people. I remember one, one old woman in particular. I'm like, hi, my name's Nathan. I'm here from the Democratic Socialists of America. Yeah, I have some information for you if you're interested. She's like, you are the socialists? I'm like, yep. She's like, well, I'm the other guys. And she like slammed the door in my face. You know, she just, just, she just had taught to be hostile towards socialists. And probably has no real concept of what that means. Um, you see people with the signs that say things like, keep your government hands off my social security. Remember the Tea Party movement? You would see hilarious signs like that. People just with no concept of what these terms mean. And I remember myself being very confused when I saw Michael Moore's 2009 film capitalism a love story i had like a home and really look up the definitions of capitalism socialism and communism because during the movie i was realizing i didn't have a great grasp on what the differences were so i don't know there's like some elements of truth in what bezmanov has to say but i don't think what he's saying is relevant to the diversity equity and inclusion coup that we're seeing consume all of our modern apparatus or institute modern institutions um, so I, I, yeah. I don't know. Well, so yeah, no doubt the canard of cultural Marxism is a, a way to distract us from uh, 
the change in democracy that Michael Benz was going on where, uh, you know, it's democracies between BlackRock and the Wall Street Journal now. Well, do you think, I mean, we're, our American society's taking a turn for dystopian and, you know, Tucker, who, well, he was over, did you see the clips where he was going to like the Russian like supermarket yeah, and yeah. the Russian subway and stuff? And, you know, you, you do kind of have to take Tucker with a grain of salt. Like he was saying that he, he thought that they were getting like four hundred dollars worth of groceries to prove to be a hundred dollars American. I mean, I don't know, like with American buying power and whatnot. I mean, the, yeah, the U.S. dollar yeah. takes you further in other countries, right? So, so yeah, like, I, I've done. You notice that when you travel, like, so the people who are getting the people's paychecks, it may, it may be that their groceries came up to like a hundred dollars American, but their paychecks are going to be like um, are going to be if you translated their paychecks into U.S. dollars, they would seem like small paychecks. So that's why, yeah, I agree with you. You have to take Tucker with a grain of salt. He's not always going to, he, he's got conclusions and he's not always going to be critical of things that might, um, that might um, put those pre-foregone conclusions into question. Um, well, what I want to say is, well, obviously we're taking a turn for the dystopian here, like in the West, right? Now, I mean, do you not, I mean, obviously things took a turn for the dystopian like under like Stalin like these crazy famines and whatnot and yeah I mean I, I guess we'd probably agree you wouldn't argue that would you yeah, uh, yeah I so th there was definitely a famine in the 1930s um, and there was definitely a mismanagement of the collectivization of agriculture and there was definitely an element of revenge against the rich people who oppressed the peasants the lords the rich who, who oppressed the peasants for so long in Russia all of that's true well, and there is the bit where America was trying to subvert, like, uh, communism the entire time, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. But I, I remember, t I had this, um, I had a friend named Mariana who, back in Florida, and she, her, she was Russian. And uh, she would talk about her grandfather always saying that he considered to be the Stalin, the Stalin times to be the best times. That's what he would always say. Um, because for, uh, they, I mean, the, the, the achievements of the Soviet government are never talked about, right? We only look at the bad. We never look at the good, but they like ended homelessness and they ended unemployment like overnight, you know, and they, and during the 1950s, I think the people in the Soviet countries were enjoying a really high standard of living, um, higher, maybe even than the U S I saw some comparisons in terms of the nutrition people got in the Soviet union versus the U S and for a while they were doing better than we were. Um, and uh, they in industrialized their country in a single generation. They led us in the space race. We got the first man on the moon, but every other achievement is all Soviet cosmonauts achieved them all. You know, first person to orbit the Earth, first person in space, first, you know, like the list is out. I think we might have first spacewalk, too, with the Gemini program, but first well, satellite on the moon. But yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, see, what we need to do is take, like, a system failure trip to Russia and assess matters for ourselves. I agree. Like, it's funny, like... Uh, uh, like, well, one of my coworkers, this guy, Dave, I mean, he heard about our podcast and he was mad that you're a socialist and uh, whatnot. But then, you know, he saw these videos from Tucker and now he's all in on Russia. And I mean, anyone can see the decline here in America. <laughs> and so uh, we need to go over there and somehow assess matters for ourselves. But uh, yeah, I, uh, it's just, uh, yeah, I don't, it's crazy. I, I, I guess in the way that like cultural Marxism is a tool, like the, being the canard that it is, gives cover for the dystopian things that the people in charge want to do. I mean, I, so I mean, is it po possible then, I guess, that they manage to use like the economic ideas of Marx as also a canard in the past to do dystopian things? Or is it just because they were under assault from the West 
uh, which caused these problems. Does that make sense? Uh, I think so. You're saying that um, you're saying that Marxist ideas caused the caused Russian government to do dystopian things. Well, they were used as a canard to do dystopian yes, things. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, that's exactly what happened, right? Uh, when we we say things like, "Well, I mean, it'd be," uh, you know, we uh, we think that. Despite what happened in Russia, we think that democratizing the means of production is still a good idea. Then you have that leads to the question of well, what went wrong in Russia. And so th- what they did was they didn't institute, institute democracy at all, right? They just you have these huge, you have these massive systems, uh, factories in some of the cities and huge you know farms and and what they did was um, they had you have this huge um, top down organization where you know you have one person at the top and they you have com- like like a factory for example like, let's say a fa- factory outside moscow or right? you have all of these workers underneath you you have one guy one ceo at the top he gives the orders and then everyone follows it we're used to that we have those kind of organizations everywhere in america today and what the russians did is inst- instead of creating worker co-ops instead of creating bottom up control they took these systems with top down control got rid of the CEO and installed a government commissar at the top, leaving the entire top-down structure completely intact, right? It was just kind of a grab for power. Yeah. It, they didn't transform the decision-making. They didn't They didn't fundamentally disturb the valence of decision-making from top-down to bottom-up. They just swapped out who was at the top and tr- tried to move in. And, and that had a, they, they, the, the, the power of, being, of having a command economy like that it had showed obvious benefits to people living in those Soviets. In the middle part of the 20th century, but they didn't fundamentally get a, they didn't fundamentally create real democratic oversight over the means of production. They just had the government take over the oversight of the means of production, which isn't quite the same thing. You know, you can see how you get from one idea to the other, um, but uh, but that I think was their issue. Yeah. So definitely, well, 100% what you're saying. All uh, right. Yeah. It <laughs> definitely what happened. Well, I guess when it comes to Yuri Bezmenov. I think, well, it's like a famous intelligence tactic to mix, you know, truth with disinformation. And I, uh, I, mean, I think that something's going on when this guy talks that you just can't quite trust. Yeah. He's giving you definitely some truth about how things work. But uh, in other way, I, uh, just the, the narrative that, like, Russia is responsible for what's going on in the United <laughs> yeah. States it seems completely insane. Yeah, yeah. What's happening here is not that the ghost of the Soviet Union survived the fall of the Soviet Union is now back to stab us in our sleep with this Marx, this cultural Marxism, right? That's not what's happening at all. What's really happening is the rotting corpse of the Soviet Union is being animated by our own powers that be. Just like the atomic bomb is is dropped by our, by our ruling class as a way to keep our working class in line, um, the powers that be are using the zombie flesh of the Soviet Union to try to scare us into accepting a deteriorating domestic situation, a, a, a domestic situation that's deteriorating economically. And I cannot figure out... So, so the idea is that... I, I, think that Bez, I think that there was an attempt... When the Soviet Union was alive, I think they did make an attempt to influence us with Marxist ideas, with self-evidently good Marxist ideas. I don't think that's happening anymore. I think that the that corpse is being trotted out to scare us into accepting, as I mentioned, a deteriorating domestic situation here at home. Um, and so I think the, what Bezmanov was saying was probably relevant to the Cold War, but I don't think you want to overlay that onto the, the, the cultural Marxism that's taking over in school. I think we're doing that to ourselves. I, I think our own corporations, right, ginned up this um, cultural Marxism, right? Who, 
who who does the diversity? Where is this coming from? It's coming from like Nike and from like Disney. So I think that's what's really going on. I think these messages are not coming to us from the Soviet Union, but from our own this weird strange version of Marxism that makes no sense and, crucially, has nothing to do with democratizing anyone's precious means of production. Well, I think the ideas come from, like, the CIA and, uh, like, Disney and, like, Bud Light are getting punished for uh, pushing these ideas. Well, what's the, uh, what's the order of... What's the real order... Uh, what's the real, like, chain of command there? Because, like, the CIA... It's like Smedley Butler said. He, he, we made things good for the for the uh, for the bank boys at Brown Brothers Harriman. You know, we like the CIA goes around and assassinates labor leaders on behalf of corporations, right? Isn't that isn't that the corporations that run the show? The the corporate interests. Well, there's like the, there's like legitimate business and illegitimate business. The mob and corporate America, two sides of the same coin. And then the CIA they are, are, is like an arm used by both of those, both of that by that both sides of that coin to carry out the things they need to get done. On an extra legal basis, right? Isn't that the wasn't that the point of Benz's podcast? What the point of what CIA became in 1948? Well, I think uh, just the 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 democracy that he's talking about, you know, between like Wall Street, the Wall Street Journal, and BlackRock. You know, there's you're seeing some democracy between Disney and those forces as well. Yeah, and yeah. Disney's taking it on the chin, but that's like the democratic process now. Is uh, yeah, for for Disney and I'd like to take it on the chin to, you know, push the canard of cultural Marxism. Yeah, I think as uh, yeah, I think you're right. As matters deteriorate, I think that um, the 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 quarterly balance sheet or the the quarterly income statement is going to we're go- they're going to be willing to sacrifice the quarterly income statements where you you know that, that used to be the whole the whole um, raison d'etre raison d'etre of our economy. I think they're going to go ahead and take hits to the income sta- the quarterly income statements to maintain control. Be like, It'll be better to maintain control in the long run, but be not so profitable in the short run. And I think that's what's going to happen. Although I think Bud Light, what happened with them was just incompetence. I don't think that they planned this. I mean, I think that they tried. They're like, okay, we're going to try to push. I, I think that they would. Li- I think that there are powers at Bud Light that the people that own Bud Light the in. The European corporation, I think they would like a diversity, equity, and inclusion message pushed. Well, but the, I think they were incompetent in the way they did it. Well, to go to what Bezmanoff is uh, saying, I mean, uh, that female CEO of Bud Light or whatever, like, learned these ideas in college. And yes. She was educated that these would be a good idea to push, and, uh, you know, it blew up in her face. It's probably how it worked. I'm sure that, the, that she, uh, yeah, she was like a director of marketing or something. But this is, this is like a moron, right? They just went to college at Harvard, thought they had some clue about the world. Right and uh, try to implement this, tried to shoehorn this DEI message into a place where it just wouldn't be welcome. And it just it was just one bridge too far, and maybe their brand will never recover. Oh, it's really odd that Rogan is like pushing Bud Light on his podcast all the time. All of a sudden, that seems very strange. Uh, it is peculiar. I, I don't know. It's unclear what is going on there. Um. All right. Well, yeah. I guess the good news is well there still are like powerful forces pushing back well like that uh you know, uh, tucker's interview with putin had like 177 million views yeah. and i don't yeah. think the super wow. bowl only gets like 115 million or something that's incredible um so uh yeah uh <laughs> it, it, it seems it seems like we're pushing back in that uh it's just not as simple that uh the censorship comp you know industrial complex is gonna suppress us all uh one would hope right yeah 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 um <sighs> Yeah, to push back. Yeah, that's really um, 
That, that is it's very interesting. I think that uh, I think that the uh, like Spotify being willing to put Rogan on um, and uh, the rise of um, Rumble um, and um, the uh, characters like Dr. Drew and Brett Weinstein now Billy Lynn to openly go on heat up the mics and openly oppose what's going on it does seem like we have a lot more res- resistance in place than we did during the darkest days of the pandemic in 2020 that last election year yeah, I mean to some extent it is the power of capitalism and that's like what specifically went wrong for the for the people in charge is that uh, you know like uh, like the New York Times it became way less credible than like Joe Rogan, right? Yeah, <laughs> and that's what they didn't foresee, and that is kind of well, it's like thanks to thanks to capitalism, sort of, right? Uh, don't don't you think? I mean, it's like the money making power of Joe Rogan has uh, pulled us through to some extent. Well, yeah, it's like um, the fact that New York Times and Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. The fact that they didn't tell the truth means they are their market share has been all but destroyed. Um, so it's capitalistic in that sense. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, that's not to say that we shouldn't also democratize, you know, the means of production. <laughs> well, so that's just it, though. Like, if um, it, it's the it, it's the corporate structure that created the that, that created the command decisions at like Wall Street Journal not to not to properly not to co- to cover the news in a certain way, so that people will be delayed from coming to the obvious conclusion that democracy over the means of production will it'll introduce a whole list of new problems. Sure. But it will solve some of the most pernicious uh, problems that are plague our society today, and um, there is there it's the ownership structure where people have a vested interest in Wall Street Journal that never show up on the news floor, right? They don't ever report the news; they just own shares in that in that company, uh, Rupert Murdoch or whatever that owns Wall Street Journal. It's that structure that makes them make decisions that to neuter their own news to the point where they lose market share. So there's there's a weird inevitability to it, but yeah, ultimately I would say it's capitalism in the sense that the corporate structure at Wall Street Journal and Washington Post and New York Times is their undoing, and it's capitalism in the sense that they are that it's their undoing because they are forced to compete in a marketplace with. Um, Folks who run, who make podcasts, uh, and like um, Brett Weinstein and, and now Tucker Carlson, that are that are not structured in a way where there's a boss that's going to have them neuter the news. Uh, yeah, so I guess I agree on multiple levels. Yeah, well, ultimately there's like a needle that you must thread. I mean, I guess I'm not. I I mean I don't know if like every corporation should be run as a democracy, but you know maybe some of them. I mean it's. Obvious, it seems like the Wall Street Journal is getting punished, and uh, so are Bud Light and Disney because they are like not threading the needle. And um, uh, I guess there's just some self-correcting forces at work, right? Yeah, yeah. I think. Um, well, you could let uh, you could let the market be a self-correcting force. Uh, let people uh, let um, de- democratic corporations compete at the grocery store. You can buy your banana from the democratic corporation. Probably going to cost more. Or you can buy it from the capitalist organization um, that's for profit. Um, but I think that if ultimately the food you get will be much higher quality. Um, just because profit would be one among many juggling balls in the decision-making processes of a democratic, uh, a democratic uh, mean, means of production versus a capitalist one. Um, but the, the profit motive has leached all of the nutrients out of our food. Right, They're giving you as little food as they can possibly get away with in exchange for your dollar. 
and uh, that that system has led us to a place where our food's all poisoned and we we Americans are suffering through a public health crisis that's unlike anything in history. Um, just another one of the things that democratic decision making would solve versus for profit decision making. But um, yeah, uh, what, what was the what was the question? Now I forgot what point we were making. I guess the point is is that if you don't thread the needle, you're going to get punished. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I guess that's it. Like, uh, I, I'm just not clear that every corporation has to be democratized. But in any case, it seems like obviously some of them are getting punished for the stupid things that they've been doing. And maybe uh, maybe Bud Light should have uh, democratized their corporation. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, yeah, it, it would be. It let's at least have the conversation about maybe some of these, maybe you know, running healthcare. It, uh, for, it, it's just not something that's that's it, running healthcare is just not something that can possibly work in a market. You, you especially if you're injured, like you're in a car accident, you can't shop from one hospital to the next. Right, the market dynamic you can't compare prices. Right, the market dynamics make no sense in healthcare. But anyway, we should just have the conversation. I think that's the that's the way forward is just being allowed to think and ponder and you know ask what if in this space of impossible democracy over uh, over over the workplace. Um, and that's the thing that it is the discussion of that that we that's why we have like um, other other things to be distracted by like the transgender issue when we should be talking about that all right well uh, you know let our voices not be censored (laughs) yeah yeah well we are as i always say in for an interesting year we shall not want for entertainment in 2024 so i'm very curious to see where uh, all the um, how all the the chips shake out uh, in this most um, most pivotal year of 2024 all right all right. Well, with that, I suppose we can uh, go ahead and put the bow on another edition of System Failure. Um, I usually, at this juncture, encourage people to send us an email at uh, uh, not at substack.com. Um, and uh, if you send us an email, we shall certainly read it on the air. It'll be curious to hear what uh, folks out there think of... Um, of our opinions um, imperiously provided on this podcast. Um, and if you want to read some essays, um, check out uh, not.substack.com. Um, there you can uh, find all manner of essays about this and similar topics. All right, we'll see you. All right, take care, everyone. Bye bye.